We're going to read about the time when the priests had to step into the water and what the end result of all of that was. And it came about at the end of three days that the officers went through the midst of the camp and they commanded the people saying, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord, your God, with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. However, there shall be between you and it a distance of about 2,000 cubits by measure. Do not go near it, that you may know the way by which you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for your word that gives us promises, that gives us hope. We thank you for the miracles that are contained within the pages of this book, but Father, I pray today that we would have the kind of faith to believe you to do the supernatural and the miraculous, that we would not limit you to miracles of times gone by. Father, in our midst, we have seen you do the miraculous. Even in the midst of tragedy, you have done things supernatural and unexplainable. Father, with many who are sick and afflicted, you have raised them up and extended their lives. Lord, we bless you and we honor you and we call upon you to manifest yourself in a real way in this place. Lord, I pray that the spirit of oppression, the spirit of being downtrodden, the spirit of discouragement would have no place in this room today, but that your spirit, holy and powerful and awesome, would manifest himself and be in control in these moments. In Jesus' name. Amen. For a while, we were all cut off. Floodwaters surrounded Albany, and we found out what it was like to live in Hawaii when you can't drive anywhere except on the island on which you live. I remember watching the news, and I remember the night when they announced that after going through person after person and department after department, they finally agreed to allow the sheriff and nine other people to walk across one bridge. You remember the footage of that? Now here's a bridge made to hold 18 wheelers and trucks and cars and everything else, but the floodwaters have potentially done so much damage that they can't walk together as a group. They have to go single file, three spaces apart, and the sheriff has to lead them. Don't want to be the sheriff in Darty County at a time like that, I can assure you. But, you know, they took those steps across that bridge. What had been shut off was now opened up, and there was a path. And once they were assured that you could take that path and you could go across as individuals, and now roads have begun to open up. Well, Joshua faced a day when he was cut off from the land of promise. He was cut off by a river at flood stage, the Jordan River. At its narrowest point... The Jordan River was 100 yards wide, according to biblical archaeologists. The current was rushing anywhere from 10 to 30 miles an hour. There was no way to cross this river. You couldn't forge it. They didn't have the technology to build bridges or boats. They were faced with an informidable obstacle. I kind of like the motto of the Seabees, who were strategic in the process of winning World War II. They had a slogan that said, the difficult we will do immediately, the impossible will take us a little longer. We have been attacking the difficult. 
The impossible lies ahead of us in trying to rebuild a community and rebuild churches and help people rebuild lives. How are we going to tackle the impossible? Well, I can tell you, there's not enough government money to do the impossible. There's not enough manpower to do the impossible. What we need is for God to come in and supernaturally and divinely work a miracle in our midst that would let the world know that God has rested himself on this place and seen us through a crisis and brought us out on the other side victorious. We need to be the testimony of what happens when churches and people and individuals work together to rebuild a community and to do it for the glory of God and to rebuild it, not by anybody's standards except that we want to be Christ in the midst of people. Well, Joshua had a task. He had all those floodwaters to deal with. I'm sure he got up early that day because the three days of waiting were over. And he went out to tell the people about what God was about to do. But I'm, I'm sure that long before the sun came up, Joshua was awake thinking about this day. Forty days of wilderness wandering was now going to be over. The land of promise that he had seen, the fruit that he had tasted would once again be his. He had waited patiently all through the time of the wilderness and now he was going to take possession. This was D-Day for Israel. This was test day. Would they follow God or would they get to the banks of the Jordan again only to turn back and wander in the wilderness? Would they walk across believing God? Would they trust God at his word? Would they believe that God could perform a miracle? Would they believe God for the impossible? Or would they stand there and say, we can't do it, we can't figure it out, so it must not be able to be done. Let's turn back and just accept life as the best as we can make it. This was the test. Not only the physical test, but it is a spiritual test for us. For all of us come to obstacles and barriers, and all of us come to our Jordan rivers where we have to die to ourselves so that we can cross over and take possession of all that God has promised us. Joshua is a picture for us of what it means to trust in the Lord, what it means for us to stand by the Lord's word and to find him faithful in meeting our needs. There are some principles that we need to remember if God's going to work in our midst and do the supernatural and the miraculous. First of all, we need to remember that with God, there is always the possibility of miracles. With God, there is always the possibility of miracles. Anytime Jesus is in the mix, friend, the miraculous can happen. Verse 5, consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Verse 10 says, Joshua said, by this, by what? By the wonders you shall know that the living God is among you. Now those are two great promises. I don't know about you, but I, I want to be a part of something where we can know that the wonders of God are among us that God's wonders are among us, that he is doing the supernatural in our midst. But I tell you what's better than that. Not just knowing that God is doing wonderful things among us, but knowing that the Lord God is among you personally. That's even better. Knowing that he is there with you in the midst of your crisis, knowing that he is there with you to face that obstacle, that's the most incredible promise of all this. But he comes to verse 13 and he tells him what's about to happen. And it shall come about when the soles of the feet of the priest who carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off. The waters which flow down from above shall stand in one heap. 
Now, God often uses miracles to commence a program in Scripture. He did it at creation. He did it at the Exodus. He did it with Elijah. He did it with Elisha. He did it with Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. He did it through the apostles in the book of Acts. There, there are miracles always tied in with God doing a new thing among his people. Anytime you see the stories of great awakenings and great revivals, you always find some sign that God gives, some miraculous movement of God that comes in and moves in unexplainable ways so that people will know that God's sovereignty and God's power and God's authority have been revealed in their midst. Now, how was Israel going to cross this river? The river was at flood stage. The Jordan River is a river much like the Flint River. It's very small and seemingly insignificant, but when it floods, it can do severe damage. How is it going to dry up? Well, the Scripture doesn't tell us how. The truth is, we don't have to know how. What we know is that it dried up and parted and that the people came across it. You say, well, that violates the laws of nature. That's why Joshua said in verse 13, the Lord of all the earth. You see, God is not a prisoner to the laws of nature because they're his laws. If you don't understand that, if you think that God is a prisoner to the law of gravity, then you're going to miss the second coming. Now, we'll wave at you on our way up and say, told you he could do it, but you're going to miss it. God is never bound by the laws of nature. He always has the right to step in and to supersede the very laws that he created to do something supernatural. He is not a prisoner to operate by those laws. Rather, the laws of nature must operate according to the laws of God because the laws of nature are, in fact, the laws of God. They are God's laws. They are set up by God. Look at verse 15. And when those who carried the ark came into the Jordan and the feet of the priest carrying the ark were dipped in the edge of the water, for the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of the harvest. Look at verse 17. And the priest who carried the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firm on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground until all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan. Anybody catch it, it said they crossed on dry ground. Do you notice it didn't say and they all got there and had to wash off their shoes get all the mud off of them? They didn't have to kick any dirt off. They crossed on dry ground. Now, there are some principles here that let us know that this is a miracle. First of all, it's a miracle because the event happened just like it was predicted. And you see all these things. I mean, these, these magazines in grocery stores, you know, where, you know, aliens invaded Elvis's body and, you know... His daughter ends up marrying Michael Jackson. I mean, you know, it's, it's, you see all these weird things. You know, a woman gives birth to 800-pound baby, and uh, God help her. But uh, <laughs> the event happened just like it was predicted. Now, you want to know the difference between a hunch and a miracle? God never misses it by one degree. God never misses it. Anybody that makes predictions is 50% right. The only way you know a prophet of God is if they're right every time. No prophet of God in the Old Testament ever said, oops, boy, I missed it on that one. I really blew that one. Why? Because they were God's spokesmen, and they spoke only what God told them to speak so they could speak with authority. Secondly, it is because the timing was exact and precise. They set their foot in the water, and immediately the waters began to dry up. The timing was exact and precise. 
No guessing. It didn't happen a little later. It didn't happen before. It didn't happen after. It happened when it was supposed to happen. Thirdly, the waters piled up in one heap for a day. Now, I don't know how you explain that, but all I know is the Scripture tells me that the waters piled up, and fourthly, the soft river bottom became dry at once. Now, you're talking about two million people and livestock and supplies and everything they would need to take with them into the Promised Land, and they crossed over on dry ground, and then the water returned immediately after the people got across. You see, the Lord is the Lord of the Jordan, and He's the Lord of the Jews. He is the Lord of all the earth. There's a difference, you see, between being connected to God and being connected with your opinions. I was trying to do something yesterday that I know better than to do. I, I, I was born with two left hands and two left feet. You know, I can preach, but don't ask me to do anything that's mechanical. I mean, you know, the, when I, I, I thought a major accomplishment of my life was when I changed the spark plugs in my VW until somebody told me even a moron can change spark plugs in a VW. <laughs> I tried to put up a light kit yesterday. <laughs> Some of you have done that, hadn't you? Well, I'm calling an electrician this week. There's supposed to be a bolt in the middle of this thing, and it doesn't hook up. But, you know, I, I did know one thing. I was there, and I had Erin holding the light, and I tried to make sure she wasn't standing on the metal ladder that I was standing on the metal ladder. And, and so I, she was holding this up, and I was trying to work on it. But I knew one thing. I, I'm smart now. I'm telling you. I went to seminary. And I knew one thing, find the fuse box and turn the power off before you start working on those wires. Now, aren't you proud of me that I figured that out? All by myself. I mean, they, they didn't even say. Yeah, I got the instructions out, and nowhere did it say, make sure the power's off. I discovered something. The difference between a live wire and a dead wire is the connection. Now, if you ever get a hold of a live wire, you know it's connected. Nobody has to say, you know what, there's power in that wire. I know, I know, I know, I'm aware. The difference between a live wire and a dead wire is a connection. You know what the difference between a Christian walking in victory and a Christian walking in defeat is? It's who you're connected to. You never let the power flow through. You never let the power surge through your life. You never let the power of the Holy Spirit come through. And only when the power of the Spirit starts flowing through your life do you begin to experience the miraculous. Now, secondly, not only is there the, the possibility of a miracle, but there must be preparation for miracles. Notice that he says, consecrate yourselves. Consecrate yourselves. Now, how do you identify the obstacle that keeps you from crossing your Jordan? Every one of us has a Jordan River, has an obstacle, has something in our lives that keeps us from walking with the Lord like God intends us to walk. There's a major hurdle for everybody. Nobody's exempt from this. Everybody has to cross their own Jordan and to consecrate themselves and to lay those things aside that seemingly are insurmountable and impossible. I like what Chuck Swindoll says. He says, We are all faced with a series of great opportunities that are brilliantly disguised as impossible situations. We have to face miracles by being prepared. There's a consecrate yourself there. You see, if Christ doesn't rule then sin rules. There must be a consecration, a setting aside. He says, don't worry about 
getting all your supplies together. Don't worry about getting your livestock together. Don't worry about making sure that, that we get the army intact. You worry about consecrating yourself. Why? Because a holy life is the equipment that God uses. God wants us to consecrate ourselves, to examine our lives, to confess our sins. There's a quote there by J. Oswald Sanders in your notes. God's tomorrow of wonders depends on our today of sanctification. It is on man's side that the windows of blessing are bolted. Our consecration withdraws the restricting bolts and blessings are released. Twofold process in consecration. First of all, it is negative. It is negative. There's a putting away. There's a forsaking. Joshua says to them, as God would say to us all the way through Scripture, if you want to walk in victory, there's some things you're going to have to give up. You're going to have to put some things off. You're going to have to put them away. You're going to have to lay it aside. You're going to have to die to yourself. You're going to have to move these things out of your life. I tell you, it'll, it will break your heart to watch people stand outside their houses and watch bulldozers come and take everything they worked all their life for and just take it off and put it in a landfill. Pictures and gifts and mementos and the piece of furniture that their mother left to them or the, the chair that their dad made and the picture of their grandparents that now can't even be recognized. All, all those things, it'll break your heart to see all that kind of stuff and you want to hold on to it, but it's impossible because it's ruined. You know what's even sadder? It's sadder to see how much people hold on to things that they need to let go of, like bad attitudes and unconfessed sin. And we try to go over and cross the river, and we try to walk in victory, and we keep holding. We like to hold on to bad attitudes, don't we? This way means yes, this way means... I mean, we, we, you know, it's like a badge of honor for us. You know, if, if somebody's hurt us or offended us or anything, we like to hold on to that as long as we can and tell that story as much as we can because when we do, we feel like we're justified. God says if you're going to have a miracle in your life, if you're going to have the work of God in your life, if power is going to come in your life, then consecrate yourself. That means whatever is keeping you from following God, you're going to have to let go of it. It doesn't matter how long you've been holding on to it. Secondly, it is positive. It is grasping hold of God because you're not just letting go and then there's a void and a vacuum. You are grasping hold of God and you're holding on to Him and you're accepting His Word and you're walking in His will and you're understanding that following Jesus means walking in the power of the Spirit. I'm afraid that the bulk of believers have never experienced consecration. They've never possessed their inheritance. They've never sung, All to Jesus I surrender, all to Him I freely give. They've never let go and let God. They've never released themselves to be what God wants them to be. They hold on, although the Scripture says that they are children of the King, they live like spiritual paupers. Why is that? Because the last thing we want to let go of is ourselves. With man, there must be preparation. The last thing, oh, we'll consequently, we'll even... Bless our kids and say, God, we want our kids to grow up and be, be good and decent and clean and honorable and godly. And we, you know, we'll even consider them going to the mission field. We'll, we'll, we'll get, dedicate our house to God. We might even dedicate our car to use it for God. But when it comes to us, this old flesh right here, that dies hard. That dies real hard. We don't want to give that up. 
We still want to have control of our lives. We'll give everybody else's life over to God's control, but we want to control our own lives. Philip Keller said, Perhaps most of my life has been spent taking care of my tent of safety, my friends, my family, my possessions, my assets, my cozy location, my career, my arrangements have restricted me from moving out boldly to take daring steps in doing the will of God. Whatever it is that's keeping you from walking in victory, you're going to have to consecrate yourselves and you're going to have to let it go. And then finally, Jesus must be preeminent. Verse 3. And they commanded the people, saying, When you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God with the Levitical priest carrying it, then you shall set out from your place and go after it. Here was the ark that had been sheltered inside the tabernacle. Now it was to be lifted up in front of the people. The ark was a picture and a symbol of God's presence. Now, if you remember about the Ark of the Covenant, it's a small wooden box overlaid with gold, and on top of it is the mercy seat. Inside that box were the Ten Commandments, the tablets of the Ten Commandments, the pot of manna, and Aaron's rod that budded. Those three things were inside, and they represented or pictured the presence of God in the midst of his people. Jesus Christ now lives in the midst of his people. And if you and I are going to see the supernatural and the miraculous, then Jesus Christ must be in a preeminent and a priority position in our lives. Jesus was the ark. The ark of the Old Testament is Jesus. He is the ark of the New Covenant and the New Testament. Now, how does that apply? Well, the ark contained the law. Jesus fulfilled the law of God. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. The ark contained the pot of manna. Jesus is the bread of life. The ark had the mercy seat on top. Romans 3.26 says, He is the just and the justifier. Jesus is the mercy seat and the lamb all wrapped up in one. He is the sacrifice and the one who offers the sacrifice of himself. He is the one on which atonement is given. He is the one in whom forgiveness is found. He is our mercy seat. And he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now we know on this side of the cross with the Holy Spirit, that he is God in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the key. The key to victory and to crossing over is not, it is not in possessing Jesus. It is in the position of Jesus in your life. Now, we don't need any testimonies of failure here, but there are a lot of people that possess Jesus that don't have any victory or any joy or any peace or any love. They're saved. Paul says they're saved as by fire. They're saved but sins. They're going to get in by the seat of their pants into heaven. I mean, they got saved. They got forgiven of their sins. But it's not possessing Jesus. You see, God was with Israel in the wilderness, but there was a promised land on the other side of the Jordan. It's not in possessing Jesus. It is in positioning Jesus in the priority position of your life. It is putting him at the center of your life. Jesus said, if I am lifted up, I will draw all men into myself. And so the priests were told, you take that ark and you lift it up and you lead the people with the ark in a priority position. The people are to stand back about 2,000 cubits. That's about six-tenths of a mile. They're to stand back and they're to see the ark and when the ark moves, they're to follow it. 
No man was to make his own way. They weren't trying to figure this out for themselves. They were to go where the ark went. Why? Because verse 4, you have not passed this way before. What we're talking about when we talk about crossing over and getting into the victorious Christian life is not something you get from Christ. It's something you already have in Christ and you just need to take possession of it. It's something that's already yours. It's not an experience. It is a person. You have not passed this way before. Say, well, I don't understand what you're talking about. That's because you've not passed this way before. You've never crossed your Jordan. You've never faced your obstacle. You've never moved ahead and done what God told you to do. You've never consecrated yourself. You've never forsaken it. Oh, you walked an aisle and you made a profession of faith and you got baptized and you joined a church and you sat down and you thought sitting on the pew and showing up for church was the Great Commission. And you thought let's eat and have a fellowship was the second of the commandments. You didn't realize that there was more to life than making a decision. It is prioritizing Jesus in your life and putting him out at the forefront of your life and wherever he leads, that's where I'm going to go. Wherever he tells me to go, that's the direction I'll take. I'm not going to argue. I'm not going to debate. And so the priest carried this ark. It was not an act of blind faith. Look at verse 8. Command the priests who are carrying the ark of the covenant, saying, When you come to the edge of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Now what were they doing? They were walking toward a flooded river and they stood still in the Jordan based on revelation. They obeyed the revelation of God. Now I like what Ron Dunn says. Physical growth is discovering what you received at birth and learning to use it. Spiritual growth is discovering what God gave me at salvation and learning to appropriate it. Physical growth is learning what you received at birth and learning how to use it. You ever seen a baby learn how to walk? Is built into them. They just got to learn how to do it. In fact, some people say the baby knows how to walk when they're born, but they forget. It's just, it's built in. Everything a baby learns to do, it didn't get it after it got born. You know, God didn't say, okay, let's see now. Let's see now. About, about 11 months, we're going to have to put the uh, daddy and mama words in this baby's head. It's already there. Everything the baby needs is already there. For whatever God has for that baby, everything it needs is already there. Same thing is true in the spiritual realm. It's finding out what you got in Jesus and then learning how to appropriate it. How? On the basis of the promises of God, on the basis of the revelation of God. Now I want you to picture these priests. They're probably all graduates of a Southern Baptist seminary, which means they didn't know anything about walking by faith. They did know how to run an overhead projector, though. So they got this ark. And they're carrying it on their shoulders. And you've seen all the little pictures that people draw this. And, and these guys are, are walking along and they're saying, you know, this, I'm not prepared for this. And I, I wonder, you know, is this, is this in the budget? Have we got this, you know, are we ready for this? And they're walking there about a half a mile away from the Jordan River. And that water is just flowing 30 miles an hour, flood stage. It just keeps on going. And they get about 100 yards away and say, you know, this would be a good time for God to start moving that water out of the way because we're getting kind of close, guys. You know, we're getting kind of close. You know, we should have asked the deacons about this before we did this because this is really getting serious and, and I don't know if I, I don't know what we're going to do and they get 10 yards away and nothing's changed everything's the same the water's at flood stage they're one foot away the water's still at flood stage it has not receded one inch why because God said 
don't go and stand on dry ground and then they'll cross over. He said, go and stand in the Jordan, then it will dry up, then the people can cross over. You see, the priest had to, tarry, had to carry God. They say, well, I, I don't want to go into the flood. I, I don't want to go in there. I, I, that, that water looks dangerous. Listen, Jesus was the first one in. The ark was the first thing that went. The very thing that symbolized the presence of God, God said, I'll tell you how safe you are. You're so safe that the very thing that symbolizes my presence is the first thing that's going to be jeopardized. That's how safe you are. My presence is going to go before you. You follow me. Now, here's what happens to us. Sure enough, those priests step in the water, and the water dries up, and immediately it's gone, and it's banked up into a heap for one day, and two million people come across. And the priests turn around and say, Come on in. The water's gone. It was here just a minute ago, but now it's gone. You don't have to even go to buy rubber boots. The ground's dry. Just come on in. It's gone, just like God said it. Now, why did God say, put it out there 2,000 cubits ahead? How many of you have ever gone to a ball game and gotten caught in a crowd? Not many people gone to a ball game here. Okay, let's come up with another illustration. No, let's, let's stay with that one. Some of you need to get out more. <laughs> I was born and I died. That's my testimony. And I'm sticking to it. <laughs> You go to a ball game, you know, you go to a Braves game or something, and, and uh, I, one of our church members took me to one of the playoff games last year, and, and we got in there, and, you know, you get in there, and of course, National League parks are all built in the round. Just some dummy compiled all these. They're all round stadiums. And you go out and you go, now, where am I parked? Where, where did we park? We came in that gate. Well, no, that gate looks like this gate. And, that gate looks like this gate down here, and that gate, and we hadn't figured out the alphabet yet, so we're still trying to figure out where we are. And, you know, you go and you got your family, and the kids stop because they always want to buy everything they see. And they got to get one more Coke so that they can tell you they got to take a stop while you're in the middle of traffic trying to get on the highway. So all these things are working, you know, and you're in there, and you're in the middle of a crowd, and you look around, and you go, where, where are the kids? Where are the, where are the kids? Where's my wife? Where, where is everybody? We're missing somebody. Who are we missing? Why? because you got caught in the crowd. That's why God didn't say, now whoever's in front of you, you just follow him. God said, you get the ark way out there ahead and you stand back here and you make sure that you can always keep your eyes on the ark and you keep following the ark because if you follow the guy ahead of you, he may look off and find some piece of rock that he wants to take and put in his rock collection and you'll end up on the wrong side of the river. You'll end up going where you didn't need to go. You'll end up following somebody that you thought was following the ark, and they were really doing their own thing. That's a word of warning to the church in America today, by the way. We end up following preachers and personalities, and, you know, you get these people, and they got this all staged, and it's all lip-sync music, and it's all everything else, and, and I mean, it looks, and more people start throwing those people money, and they start giving them money and, and giving them their time and going all over the world to see their preachers and everything, and then their preacher in their little old church, bless his heart, he's trying as hard as he can, but he just doesn't look like he's in love with Jesus as much as that guy on TV that's all flashed up and cleaned up and spit and polished and driving a Rolls Royce on tithe money. And so you start following this guy, and one day you wake up and you realize this guy's not going with Jesus. He's out doing his own thing. He's building his own kingdom. He's got his own agenda. That's why God says when you want to cross over into victory, 
don't follow somebody else. You follow me, and I'll get you across. The position of the ark. Now, got any rivers you think uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't climb? God specializes in things thought impossible. He'll do what no other friend can do. Can I tell you something today? Jesus does not give victory. Jesus is the victory. Jesus does not give you peace. He is your peace. Jesus does not give you grace. He is grace. Jesus does not give you love. He is love. You may have come today and you're thirsty, spiritually thirsty. Jesus said, I'm the living water. You drink of me, you'll never thirst again. You may have come today and you're spiritually hungry, and Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. You may have come today and you're lost, and Jesus says, I'm the way. If you'll follow me, you won't get lost anymore. You may come today and you're spiritually blind, and he's the light of the world. You may come today and you find yourself to be dying inside, and Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. You have not passed this way before, but I want to tell you something. He has. He has. Wherever he's taking you, he's already gone ahead of you. You have not passed this way before, but he has. I keep a file of letters, several files now, of letters from people through the years who have written me notes and been encouraging uh, anything that's not addressed and anonymous I throw away because I figure that's about where it belongs. So I don't even, I don't even read those, but... Uh, and anything that's critical, I take it and ask God if there's a word of truth in it, and if there's not, then I throw it away. But uh, I always keep encouraging letters. Uh, that's not a hint to flood me this week. That's just a, an illustration. But I got a letter from a lady that I keep in my file. And I, and I thought about this letter the other day while I was preparing this message, and I had preached a message on crossing over into Canaan, and I, and I preached a, a message basically on uh, what Jordan is and what... Egypt is and what the promised land is and spiritual ramifications of all that. And this 78-year-old lady wrote me this letter and I've kept it and I thought, boy, if, if everybody could have the teachable spirit that this lady had at 78, when she could have said, hey, I, you can't teach me anything. She said, once I had the courage to step over and taste Canaan, I can never be satisfied with the wilderness again. Safe though it might have been without Satan snapping at my heels, still give me Canaan. Oh, it looks safe in the wilderness, but I want to tell you something. The only thing that happens in the wilderness is you eat the same food every day and you end up dying. In the promised land, you at least have the potential for victory. You have the potential for power. You have the potential for the grace of God to come on your life. You have the potential for the miraculous. I'm a Civil War buff. I, I love Civil War history. I, I read books on Civil War history. I collect art on Civil War history because I love the Civil War. It, it's, uh, it's an interesting period of history to study, and I was a history minor, and most of that uh, that I could get, I got that in Civil War history. When Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation, he set all the slaves in America free. That proclamation was signed and became law and had the power of the United States government behind it. All the slaves were legally free, but they were not all experientially free. Now, for them to become free and to walk in freedom, there were several things that had to happen. First of all, they had to hear the news 
that the Emancipation Proclamation had been signed. Then it didn't matter whether they felt like they were free or not, they were free. Their feelings were not the issue, the law was the issue. Secondly, they had to believe the news that they heard. They had to accept it as truth. Thirdly, they had to believe that it was true for them. Not just true for people that lived somewhere else or for slaves on some other plantation or, or in some other factory, but it was true for them. And then fourthly, they had to act on what they heard to be the truth. And when they did, the United States government had signed that they would back them up. Now you say, what's that got to do with the Christian life? I'll tell you what it's got to do with it. Too many believers are still living in spiritual slavery. Some people are lost and living in the slave house of sin. Some people are saved and slaves to sin and to habits and to bondage that Satan has put on their life that they say they can't get free from. Well, I've got some good news today. Jesus Christ has signed an emancipation proclamation for you. And he has signed it with his blood. But you see, some things have got to happen before it becomes reality for you. First of all, you've got to hear it. You've got to hear that Jesus Christ, with his blood on the cross, sets you free from the bondage and the chains of sin and death. And that he has offered you life abundant in himself. Secondly, you've got to believe that the promises of God for you are true. It can't be that it's just nice literature or good writing or great devotional thoughts or makes a good Sunday school lesson. You've got to begin to believe that those promises are true for you. If they're true for the person next to you, they're true for you. If they were true for John Wesley, if they were true for Martin Luther, if they were true for the missionaries, they're true for you then you've got to count on those things as being true today. Not some point out there in the future, not when you work up enough faith, not when you get a little momentum going, not after you get some other things dealt with, but as you consecrate yourselves today, it's true for you, and then you must act on your freedom and step out of Satan's bondage. And then, funny thing, all the power of the Holy Spirit and of heaven stands behind you. The Scripture says, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Consider yourself to be dead to sin, but alive to God. You know what some of you need this morning? You need to be set free. You need to read the Emancipation Proclamation that says you don't have to die in the wilderness. You can cross the Jordan. You can go to the other side. You can walk in victory. Now, I'm, I'm going to be honest. For a large part of my ministry, too much of my ministry, I let the devil beat me over the head about some things in my life, some things in my past, some things that I wasn't comfortable with, some things that I maybe was bitter about some things that I felt like I couldn't be forgiven of. And one day I had to get along with God and I had to say, God, these promises have got to be true because there's so many people that have believed them through the years. And if they were true for them, I just got one question, God, why isn't it true for me? Why can't you do this for me like you did for them? 
Why can't I have power like they have power? Why can't I walk in victory like they walk in victory? Why can't I be an overcomer like they overcome? Why can't I overwhelmingly conquer? I barely can even get out of bed. Why can't I be that way? And God said, if you'll let me take over, you can be. But you're going to have to let me have your life in control. You're going to have to take your hands off. You're going to have to turn over the keys to your life. You're going to have to open all the closets and all the cupboards. You're going to have to clean it out. And then when you give it to me, I'll make something out of your life that you never could have been otherwise. You know what? He wants to do that for you today. I don't care what your problem is. I don't care what your background is. I don't care what you're dealing with. I don't care what people have told you you're never going to overcome. I don't care about any of that stuff. I know that there is a God who can part a river, and if he can part a river, he can deal with whatever it is that's beating a stew out of you spiritually. 